All right, well, as I mentioned in my prayer, the title of tonight's message is, Where Should the Poor Turn? Where Should the Poor Turn? And it comes from Psalm 41. When you use that word poor, most people automatically associate that word with financial limitations. That's, I would bet dollars to donuts that you would have thought that first thing when you think of poor, that that's the first thing that would come to mind is that we're talking about poor financially, financial limitations. That's how we've sort of been programmed to think as we think about the messaging of the world around us. That's the first thing that is of a concern. It's nothing new. That is something that would have commonly been the case throughout human history. But the word refers to lacking sufficient amounts of anything that is typically perceived to be needed in life. So it doesn't have to be limited in any way to a consideration about financial need. It refers to, if you're poor, that you're lacking sufficient, sufficient amounts of something that is needed. And so as you think about the different kinds of categories or various categories of need that you could identify, it could include any number of different things, relational needs. Financial needs is, of course, the one that we talked as coming first to our minds. But how about emotional needs or Spiritual needs from a biblical perspective, of course, that's the focus of God's word is spiritual needs. Or how about physical needs? And so if you're lacking anything in the amount that's perceived to be, typically perceived to be the amount or the sufficient amount that would be needed for life, then you could say, well, in that sense, then I'm poor. Poor at least as it relates to that thing. And people commonly find themselves poor in one or more of those categories that I just went through. Now, you could say they find themselves poor. Sometimes that's just a matter of perception. Sometimes that's real poverty in the sense that they're, they really are, really are missing the kinds of things that would be necessary to thrive as God intended people to. Of course, God's primary focus spiritually, but physically as well in this temporal, temporal world, but in the eternal realm as well. And so when you think about these types of things, God, he sees that we have needs. He sees that regardless of which one of those categories we're talking about, these categories of things that are necessary or they're needed in life in order to thrive or have joy or happiness as, as God intended. Again, we're looking at this from a spiritual perspective, but God, he sees what we need. Not, not in just one of those categories, but in every one of those categories. And if, if God sees our needs as it relates to those things, you'd say, well, then what difference would that make to my, my sense of comfort or my sense of encouragement here tonight? Well, it's not only that God sees those need, but, needs, but God cares about his children. And because he sees our needs and cares about us as his children, God undertakes to provide what is needed. And when you think about how does God do that, oftentimes you could think, well, okay, that's a good truth, interesting truth, but how would it relate to me? Well, this is the primary way that it relates to you. One, you have to see that God is the one we need to be looking for. He's the one that somebody who is poor, and we're going to touch on how everybody has a need or is poor in that sense. And when we're in that place, we turn to God or we put our focus on the Lord. But the second part of it is actually going to be the thing that comes out first in the psalm just because of the way David structures Psalm 41. And it's this, that God, he sees our needs, he cares about us, he undertakes to provide for our needs, but he primarily does that. He primarily provides for his children through other concerned children other children of his that have a concern for one another that God wants to then work in their lives 
to meet the poverty that is existing in everyone's life in some way, shape, or form. So as you think about that, care for one another is something that God desires to produce in every believer's life, that we would have this care or concern for one another and the needs of one another. And in the context of our message tonight, we're talking about the poverty of one another as we see that even that term just refers to not having the strength, not, not having power, not having the things that are needed. And so the thing that's easy to do then, if you start to follow this train of thought, is you say, God sees my needs, he cares about my needs, he provides for my needs, he primarily does that through other people. All of a sudden, though, the temptation is to start to look to other people or focus on other people in our Christian lives, especially as it relates to things that are lacking or things that are needed. And that's, got, that's not God's desire at all, that just because he uses oftentimes other people as the vehicle for him to speak into our life and provide in our lives the things that are needed, that we would then all of a sudden stop focusing on him, stop looking to him, stop trusting him, stop depending on him, and start focusing and fixating and relying and depending on people instead. And we're going to see from this psalm that David was in a position where he was looking at some of the people in his life too, and he was, he was let down greatly by doing that. So it's critical to remember that God's care is the focus. God is the provider, not people. People are merely the vehicle for God's care and provision. So Psalm 41 is going to encourage the believer to remain focused on the Lord in time of need. And so to answer the question of our title, where should the poor turn? The answer is the Lord. The poor should turn to the Lord in time of need, not first and foremost to people. And of course, Again, the emphasis here is spiritual need. So take a look at Psalm 41 if you're not there already. We're going to go through this relatively short psalm, and hopefully we'll go through it relatively quickly here tonight. But Psalm 41, just because of the length being somewhat manageable, let's just read through it together, and then we'll break it down. Psalm 41, verse 1 begins with, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him, this one who is considering the poor, in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will, you will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die? And his, and his name perish. That's what they're saying about him. And if he comes to see me, meaning one of these enemies, he speaks lies. His heart is just gathering iniquity to itself. When he goes out from being near me, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. They're saying this about him. Verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before the face, your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen, a double, may it be so, amen, generally meaning may it be so, or may it be true, or may it be as it was said. Now, as we're looking at this psalm, we start with this description of the blessed man. Now, we've looked at that 
even when we started this series on the insights in Psalms, we, we looked at that even from Psalm number one, Psalm one, blessed is the man. And many of you know that Psalm, but blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, and on that goes. But we, our first title from this series was The Blessed Man. And as we look at this here, we're going to see a third installment of The Blessed Man starting out a psalm and being described. Now, this is, again, a description of somebody who is joyful. So what do we mean when we say blessed is the man or the blessed man? Well, blessed or joyful is, about how, is how it's translated about 50% of the time. So the word really means joyful, meaning blessed or joyful is the man, and then we're going to have something described that makes that so or brings about that result. Now, this progression of these three psalms that have started with the blessed man or saying blessed is the man, there's a progression sort of as you think about how they're tied together, these three things. So we started with Psalm 1. And it associated blessing with delighting in God's truth and the direction that God would have in one's life. That's how it starts out, and that's how the psalm, what the psalm discusses. The blessed man is being the one who's delighting in God's truth and the direction that God has for his life. Now, turn to Psalm 32, because we didn't hit on this quite as much when we went through Psalm 32, but Psalm 32... We're going to see that this blessed man is described very succinctly in verse 1 of Psalm 32. Blessed is he. Now, what is going to be the thing or the concept that brings about that blessing or that joy in that person's life? Well, joyful is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. So now we start off with one who's blessed because they're delighting in God's truth. What would be the number one way that you would sort of discuss delighting in God's truth as you're relating, as it relates to being a person of faith. The first step in, in learning to delight in God's truth. Now, that's a little bit of a hard question maybe, but as you think about it, it's not that hard. The first sort of action or decision of trusting in God's truth or God's direction would be to trust God as it relates to what God says about your sinfulness and the penalty that's owed due to that association with sin in terms of being born into sin and choosing to sin, and God's then solution to deal with man's sin apart from human works and all through the provision of God on your behalf. So we call that term, theological term for that concept, justification. How somebody could be put in a judicial standing before God of being in a right standing with God. Now, we think about that as salvation from the penalty of sin. Every, the Bible declares that every person is born a sinner. And that that sin, again, was inherited in the sense we were born into a race of sinners. We were identified with the rejection and rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. And how that death then, that separation from God, spread to all men that would come thereafter. And then by virtue of cho choices that each and every person makes themselves, that people have a free will and a volition, so they have the ability to make decisions and they choose to reject and rebel against God on their own accord. And so between the two things, the Bible says that the wage of sin is death, to be spiritually separated from God. And, and why was that? Well, just to track it briefly, because God, being many things, but God was amongst those different characteristics, he was holy, he was set apart. He was untainted by sin in any way. Now, if God is perfectly righteous and holy, God couldn't be 
in close proximity or in close relationship with sin. And if we became identified with sin due to our own choices and being born into even just a, a, a race of people that have that tendency towards being influenced by sin to oppose God and reject God, then we're tainted goods in a sense by, uh, by virtue, again, of our own decisions, which we're, we stand guilty before God because of those choices. And so if God is perfectly set apart and holy and he can't have fellowship or a relationship with sin, but we're identified with our sin, that's man's biggest problem. And that's true going all the way back to the fall of men with Adam and Eve. And it was true of every man in the human race up till now and for all eternity until the Lord returns and there is no more sin. But up to that point, every man or woman, every man, woman, and child on planet Earth has, that's ever existed has had a decision to make. Do I recognize that I have a problem? My problem is that I'm estranged from God as a result of my sin. It's a debt that I can never pay because the debt for sin is death, eternal separation from God. So I could only pay it one way, and that's to die spiritually and remain dead spiritually for all of eternity in the place that God isn't, which the Bible calls the lake of fire. So that was option one, is that I would have to just own up to and satisfy the debt that I owe due to my own choices. Option two was an innocent or somebody else was going to have to take my place. An innocent was going to have to take the place of the guilty so that the debt could be satisfied because God is just. In addition to being holy, he couldn't just overlook sin. So God's justice demanded that there be a satisfying payment for the debt that was owed. And so the choices were simple. I would pay the debt or somebody else would pay it for me. And friends, that's the good news of the Bible from start to finish is that God had a plan to rescue and redeem those that were lost and estranged from him as a result of their sin. See, the message of the Bible isn't a sad story. It's a happy story about how God wanted to make people who were broken and sinful right with him, not on the basis of what they could do for God, but on the basis of what God in his love would do for them. And that's how eventually you get to John three sixteen. In the New Testament, it says God loved the world so much that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. He would be given something that he didn't deserve as a result of believing or faith, two words are synonymous, believing what God had done for him, accepting God's sacrifice on his behalf through the person and work of Jesus Christ as Jesus hung on a cross on Calvary crying out, I love you this much. And as Jesus loved you that much and died for your sin, you had a decision then to make. A decision to make, will I put my trust and accept God's solution to deal with my sinfulness or will I say in essence, I can fix this problem myself? Now many men and women over the centuries have tried, and unfortunately there is no salvation apart from accepting what Christ has done. But two verses later it says, he who believes, in John 3, 18, is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And so now if you go back and you think about this idea of man having this problem, well, when you talk about responding to God's truth, the first truth man was confronted with was you can't solve this problem of sin yourself. Now, did they have the same depth of understanding about what God's final solution to man's sin was going to be? No, they knew, though, that they had a problem, that they were sinners, and that God was going to have to cover or atone for their sin through the substitutionary death of an innocent in the place of the guilty. 
See, man has only ever been made right with God, no matter which part of the story of the Bible you're talking about, as a result of his faith, deciding to take God at his word, to believe that what God said was true, and to say, I'm going to put my trust in what God can do to rescue me when I'm hopeless without him. And so when you think about this progression of the blessed man, it starts with, I'm going to take God at his word. Well, taking God at his word starts with seeing that I have a problem, I'm estranged from God due to my sin, and that God is going to have to deal with my sin through his provision to meet my sinfulness or to take care of my sinfulness. And so they were looking forward to a coming redeemer. And they looked forward to the coming Redeemer through the sacrifice or the shedding of blood of innocent animals that were sacrificed in the place of the guilty. But it was man's recognition that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior and that there has to be a substitute for my sin, which God is going to alone provide. And they looked forward to that coming Redeemer. We now look back at the cross of Christ. The Redeemer has come. So that's a little bit of a long-winded thing to say, the first step of faith or the first decision that anyone of faith would ever really make is, am I going to take God at his word? And, and what part of that would I start with? His truth as it relates to my problem or my condition with being estranged from God as a result of my sinfulness. Now, many, many other things I need to trust God with in moving forward, but those are the things that I would have to start with. And we see that here even with the blessed man in, in Psalm 32 because it's saying, blessed is this man who has been pardoned and forgiven. Now, David is talking about that in a sense of having been pardoned from the debt that was owed for his man's sinfulness in terms of a point in time in the past where David had to make a decision. Would he put his faith in, his confidence in God's ability to provide for his sinfulness as it related to eternity? And the answer is there had to come a time when David decided to do that. But then the second part of that that David is actually talking about is then in a practical day-to-day -day walk, do you still keep making mistakes and keep doing things that are wrong even though the debt of your sin has already been taken care of? And the answer is yes. The debt has been taken care of, but it doesn't stop us from still being influenced by sin in our lives and still making wrong choices. So now there has to be a relational restoration in the sense that once I've put my faith in what Jesus Christ has done for me, I am said to be made right with God. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God looks at me, he no longer would ever see me in my sin anymore. He adopts me into his family. He calls me his child. He seals me with his spirit, and he says, I'll never let you go. So that's a fixed fact at a point in time that I choose to put my faith in Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, the Bible says, them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. So I made that choice. But then in my now newfound relationship where I'm a son, he's my father, we're family in that sense. I'm a child of God. Do, does sin interfere with that day-to-day, everyday relationship? Yes. Just the same way as sin gets in the way of your relationships with each other. If you mistreat each other, do the wrong things, there's barriers there that are caused by our behavior toward one another. So what has to happen? There has to be re re relational restoration where we still may be married, but until there's some acknowledgement or working through what happened there, there isn't any intimacy presently. Now, we're still husband and wife, or some of you here are brother and sister, or brother and brother, or that type of thing. You're still brothers, you're still in the same family, but something has gotten in the way to interfere with that day-to-day -day practical relationship. 
Well, there has to be that healing and that restoration, that forgiveness that would take place in order for you to be back in good terms with one another again. And that happens in the life of the believer over and over and over again as we keep making mistakes from time to time. We keep choosing the wrong things and God has to restore that again. And then one day, until one day, we're going to go to be with him. And he says, I'm going, to dis- I'm going to get rid of sin altogether. There'll never be sin anymore. But up until that point, that has to happen. Now follow this tr- progression because we have, I, I chose to take God at his word in Psalm 1. 32, I'm blessed or I'm joyful because I'm one who's pardoned and forgiven. Now what would the natural byproduct of recognizing all of that be? Well, we have it right here. Blessed is the man who has a concern or considers the poor. Now, if you're really summarizing that, the blessing is associated with seeing God working in the life of a believer. See, God's work in the believer's life, it's described in terms of having a concern for the poor. So as you grow in your faith, it starts at a point in time where you take God at his word. You, you, we could look at it as a first time or a one time being pardoned and forgiven from the penalty of sin or the debt that is owed from sin. And then as a result of that, now being in God's family, God wants to produce a godly way of life or work in the life of the believer. Well, one of the ways that he does that or that would be manifest is through this concern for the poor. Blessed is he who considers the poor. Now, this word considers is defined as taking notice of or paying attention to someone or something, to take notice of it. The idea, or it's it's translated this in at least one place, is to have a heart for them. So joyful is he who has a heart for those who are poor. And the focus is on compassion. The focus is on compassion instead of just awareness. So think of all of the awareness of man's need that you might have. People in your life, they have various need. They're poor in the sense that there's something missing. That term poor, if you look at it in Hebrew, it means weak or helpless. Being helpless or weak. But it's talked about there's something needed, there's something that's missing where there's a need for help to be rendered. And so as you think of the different categories we talked about of areas that you could be poor, there's everyone around you that you know that is lacking in one of those ways or another, and in a sense, they're in poverty or they're poor. And so the one who's being led and directed by God's spirit working in their life or with a godly mentality, that person is going to actually have compassion for those people that they see have those needs, just as others would have that compassion towards you as they recognize your need, because it's not just about being aware of it, it's about caring that they're going through that. And I think that's something that is really convicting, because it's easy to get so wrapped up in your own life that you're just seeing that happen in the lives of people. But, and, and perhaps you're aware of it in that loosest sense, but you don't have a heart for them. You don't have compassion for that. So you look at this considering the poor, what is that really? That's a representation of God's goodness shining through you. And ultimately, this is God's desire for every believer that he could shine his light through us. Now, one of the ways that would be manifest in a practical way is that we would have a compassion and concern for people who have needs of various kinds. Now you think about, to summarize that, then the believer is always blessed by fulfilling God's will for his life. And in this, in this context, God has a will for our lives that we would have a concern for other people. Now you say, this seems kind of disconnected. 
Why would, why would David start out with this discussion of the blessed man and the blessings that would flow from one who is having or in conjunction with one who is considering the poor? Because everything else through the end of verse 3 really speaks to what David says are associated with the blessings of one who is considering the poor. He says, of that person, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not, referring to God, will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness, and God, you, will sustain him on his sickbed. So David describes this blessing that God has in our, on our lives when we're fulfilling his will for our lives, primarily in terms of physical blessing. And that's not the first time that we've seen that. See, David kind of sees prosperity or the blessing of God almost exclusively in some ways, it seems, but he certainly puts a heavier weight on the physical side of that, the physical blessing that he seems to think is associated directly with living out or having God's will for one's life being manifest in that life. And that's because of his understanding of covenantal blessings that is different from our time today, but his understanding that God is going to physically prosper or promise to physically prosper those that would trust him, follow him, obey him. Now, that isn't the promise that God makes to us in this dispensation or this age, but that is how David saw it. You see him kind of consistently refer to things aren't going well physically, and that's due to not trusting the Lord. Things are going well physically or physical prosperity, then it's tied to trusting the Lord. And so in some ways, this almost seems like a disconnect from the rest of the psalm, but David starts with this because he views himself as poor, abandoned, and mistreated by men. We're going to see that in the following verses. So he's saying, if these people that have let me down would have instead considered me in a compassionate way, would have had a heart for me in a compassionate way, I wouldn't be where I am now. So he's almost saying people would be blessed if they would consider each other in their time of need. They're not doing that in my life, so I start off by saying that. That it would have been nice if people would have been doing that and they would have benefited from doing that. And he's challenging people in a sense to see him or treat him differently. He wants to encourage people to behave differently and have a compassionate heart for one another instead of the behavior that we see here that's going to come next, behavior that is brought about by or carried out by both his enemies and those that he considers to be his friends. And so then let's, let's move on for just for the sake of time. We'll keep going. We're going to skip verse 4 because that's tied into the latter part here. It's, it's said earlier here where he says, I said, Lord, be merciful to, be, to me. Heal my soul for I have sinned against you. And that's also when he comes back to verse 10. That's where he kind of turns to what the Lord is going to do to undertake or who he turns to for assistance when he sees that people have not been the solution or have not been the ones who have helped undertake for him in his time of need. People, in fact, have turned on him, both his enemies and his friends. And so this, this next section here is we're talking about David seeing himself as poor. He's seeing himself as being in a place of need. And he's saying people who would care about that, they would have been blessed, but they didn't follow through or show up in my life or they weren't available when I needed them in that sense. So then he moves on to what is it that he's going through 
he wants to sort of describe what he's going through that has caused him to feel like I'm in a place where I'm poor, I'm in poverty, I'm in a place of need. Now listen to what he's going through, picking up in verse 5. I call this section, the, tr- the struggle is real. Life isn't easy. Many of you might relate to exactly what he has to say here tonight, but you could also fill in the blank with anything that you're presently going through. Verse 5, my enemies speak evil of me. Is that true? Are you experiencing that tonight? Your enemies speaking evil of you? And they say, he's being sarcastic here, but he's, he's saying, they're saying things like, when will he die and his name perish? Now, did he hear somebody actually say that, or is he just sort of giving an example of what he perceives them to be saying? It doesn't really matter. Verse 6, and if he comes to see me, speaking of his enemy, he speaks lies. He tries to get in my good graces. His heart, his intentions is, is what this means. His intentions are to gather iniquity to itself or to find out about failures or juicy gossip in my life, when he goes out then, what does he do? He tells it. He can't wait to get close to me for the exclusive purpose of tearing me down and gossiping with others about it. Now, what's another description? Verse 7, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. And this is the kind of things that they say. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. They're saying this about him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. And then he turns to, those were his enemies, how about his friends? Verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, which is a reference to intimacy, having eaten meals together, even that person has lifted up his heel against me, meaning he's turned against me. So trials, they take many different forms. And you think about the struggle is real. Well, suffering, it's a byproduct of sin, and it inevitably must be faced in life. There's no way around it. And adversity comes from expected sources, and adversity comes in life from unexpected sources. So who are the expected sources? Well, my enemies. You'd expect that you'd face adversity from your enemies. And we see that in verse 5. My enemies speak evil of me. We see that in verse 6. People act like friends when they aren't. That's how you would paraphrase that. What do those people do who are acting like friends when they're not? Well, they gather juicy information with bad motives. And I already mentioned that in verse, the back part of the, the second part of verse B. His heart, those pers- that person gathers iniquity, juicy information. They do it though with bad motives. They want to go out and then tell other people about it. You see that then repeated in verse seven. They gossip about me is how we would put that. Verse eight, they make up lies about me. These things aren't even true. Now, question, how many of you can relate to this? That there's people that you would consider to be against you in your life. Maybe you wouldn't call them enemies, but there's people you consider to be against you in your life. And they're making, we got a hand. All right, thank you for your participation. We have three, or three of you that are going through this and the rest of you have apparently very blessed lives. But there's people in your lives that they've never really been for you. You kind of think of them in enemies. Maybe you don't use that word, but they're just not for you. But at the same time, they do kind of try to get close to you at times, and they've done it in the past, and they maybe will do it again in the future, but what you've seen happen is they try to get close to you, but it's phony and fake. And because maybe they're jealous of you, or maybe they just want to tear you down, or maybe they're just the kind of people that are like every person on planet Earth who just loves negativity by nature. This is the default of man, is to love negativity. That's why what kind of news sells? Bad news sells, right? That's why the stories in the news will never lift your soul. I'd suggest just ignore it altogether. But in any event, that's, that's the juicy stuff that sells. 
And it used to be that they'd sprinkle in a, a, a feel-good story here and there into the news. Now they don't even bother. Now it's just all brokenness all of the time. But you think about it, that's what people do. They kind of come alongside you at times, act like maybe they're your friend, they're your buddy. And then you maybe feel you let your guard down. What happens when you let your guard down? You tell about some of the hard things you're going through, some of the struggles that you're going through. Some of them are kind of very personal. They're, they're very real things, and they're very things you wouldn't want everyone to know. And then what do those people do? They go and put it on social media, right? They go and tell other people about it. You know, the thing that tears down communities, tears down relationships, injures people more than anything else, isn't that people are throwing literal stones at each other. It's that people are throwing figurative stones at each other by consistently peddling bad news and gossip about people. Sometimes it's true, but it should have been prayed for. It should have been kept to oneself. It should have been the kind of thing that you would keep in confidence. Or sometimes it's, it's false and it's just literally made up. Now we have both examples given here. People have made up things about you that aren't true. People have taken juicy information about you that is true, but should have been private, and they've made it public for their own, so they could feel good about it. So they, could, they can't even wait sometimes to race off to the next person. <laughs> I wish you at home maybe could have seen that there. Just giddy with enthusiasm about how they can talk some dirt about you. Well, what's the underlying motive? I think oftentimes this is because they feel so bad about their own life and their own struggles and their own failures. It makes them feel good to put the focus on, on someone else. There's probably more to it than that. For the sake of time, we have to move on. That you could expect, right? That those people who have kind of been your adversaries to begin with would do that. But sometimes we have adversity that comes from unexpected sources too. We see that in verse 9. Let's look at it again in verse 9. We see... Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You see, you expect mistreatment from enemies, but it's much harder to have friends turn against you. If I was going to summarize this, I would say, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against me. Is that put somebody in a place of need where they're really hurting? where they're really struggling? Yes, and David's saying that's the place I was in. It would have been nice if others would have considered me in my time of poverty. They didn't, but I had just started off by talking about how those were the people that God, that's the mentality that God wants people to have. That's how he wants to work in people's lives. But this is what I was going through, and I didn't have anybody who was there to come alongside of me, to be used by the Lord in my life to encourage me and strengthen me and assist me in my time of need. Now, we're gonna see that he, that didn't, eventually he, he did look to the right place. He looked to the Lord for what he needed, but he didn't get that from others. Both his enemies and his friends had turned against him. Against him. It reminded me of the song that we sing here at church, Eye of the Storm. There's a part in that where he says, and when I realize I've been let down by my friends and my family, I can hear the rain reminding me. And then it goes into the chorus, in the eye of the storm, you remain in control. And we could go on with it, but you see, it's not just enemies that let us down in life, right? And so the struggle is real. Times are tough. Life is difficult at times. So what's the solution always going to be? You know, as we even come back to where should the poor turn? 
We're talking about a poor person being anybody who needs help or assistance, who is weak or is missing something or needing something. Where should the poor turn? Well, the answer is calling out to the Lord. Let's go back to verse 4 that we skipped over because this was the introduction to the underlying idea from 10 through 13. But verse 4, it says, I said... So I, I couldn't say this to my enemies, and I, certainly, and I couldn't say it to my friends either, but I said, Lord, be merciful to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And so as we look at that section, then let's go down to verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up, that I may repay them, those that have been against me. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in your, my integrity and set me before your face forever. Then he ends with this blessing to the Lord, uh, a doxology or a praise that's directed to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So as we go back to verse 4, I said this to the Lord, though. Restoration begins with recognizing that you have a need. And we've touched on that already at length tonight. We're not going to belabor that point. But he says what? Heal my soul. See, David realizes his poverty. He realizes that there's something missing, that there's been this hurt or this difficulty in his life that he's facing, that he's in a place of need and he's going to call out to the Lord. So he turns then to the right place for help. And we see that in verse 4 where he says, Lord. You could just, you see that in verse 10, O Lord. He looks up. Instead of looking to people which had let him down, which had discouraged him, even though perhaps he should have been able to look to people. You know, in a nation of people of faith, which the nation of Israel was supposed to be, he ought to have been looking around and seeing a bunch of people being led and directed by the Lord. If there was a whole bunch of people around David who were being led and directed by the Lord, wouldn't it have been somewhat reasonable for him to have said, I should have been able to look around and find this assistance that was lacking in my time of need, but there was none, none in the form of my enemies or in the form of my friends. But he's saying, then I turn to the Lord. Because even looking around or being happy or thankful or even having maybe an expectancy that there'd be some people that God was working through that would be present in time of need, that's ultimately not the right perspective. The right perspective is that we're always going vertical. We're always looking to the Lord in our time of need. And then he may speak to that need or minister to that need through people, but not because we started with people, but because we turned our gaze and fixed our gaze on him. Now, that seems really obvious, but you see this sequence here, even in this psalm, where David didn't necessarily do that. He started off by being frustrated at people. And then it says that he has this change of perspective where he looks to the Lord as sort of how I read this. Now, the third thing, if you're kind of going through steps here, is it, re it begins with recognizing that there's a need. He turns to the right place, which is the Lord. And then he realizes that God's assistance is based on God's character, not on whether he deserves it or not, not on human merit. You see, he says, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. He says that in verse 4. He repeats it in verse 10. Be merciful to me. Now, mercy involves steadfast love, compassion, and gracious kindness and favor. So if it's gracious, then it's undeserved. The definition of grace and mercy is just tied to grace almost inseparably. But as you're thinking about grace, it's not deserved. So, so David has to come to the place, if he wants help in time of need, to call out 
turn to the right place. Where should the poor turn? The Lord. Turn to the right place, having a recognition that he has a need, seeing that God doesn't owe him anything, but anything that God does to respond is going to be done based on God's steadfast love, God's compassion, God's gracious kindness and favor. He has to have that perspective. Otherwise, there is no healing. I I hope you see that. God doesn't owe you anything. God in his love, he bestows his gracious goodness on our lives because he loves us so much and chooses to do that. But not because he owes us that. And so if you have that perspective, then you don't have the right thinking and you're not going to be in a place where you can be restored to a position of intimacy with God because your thinking's still out of whack. So what's the fourth part of this? Is that it involves realizing it's undeserved and that it involves acknowledging failure. So I have a need. I look to the right place for help. I realize that I don't necessarily deserve. I haven't merited God's help. But I also acknowledge when there's been failure or flaws that have gotten in the way of my relationship with God. He says what in verse 4? I have sinned against you. Heal my soul. So there's another description of, again, that's the description of seeing what the need is. I'm broken. I need healing. I know that you, Lord, are the one who can provide it. I know it would be as a result of your mercy. And then I have sinned against you. See, we can't move forward with God. We can't have what is missing restored if we don't even see, see that we have done anything wrong or that our thinking has been flawed. So he ends there. And then the rest of the psalm, if that's effectively verse 10a and 4 are repeats of each other, then 11 and 12, he's talking about what he sees that restoration to involve. Again, he's always focused, not always, I shouldn't say that. He's often, we're 41 psalms into this. This is the last psalm psalm in this first book, and then we're going to, it's going to change direction a little bit with Psalm 42. There's several books that the psalms are broken down into, but as we've been looking at some of these Davidic psalms, oftentimes, again, he, he, he thinks in terms of the physical temporal realm. And so if there's restoration that God provides, which isn't deserved, which is tied to his acknowledging his failure and turning back to the Lord, then he always sees it in terms of raising me up, vengeance to a, to a certain extent that I may repay them. Uh, by this, I know that you are well pleased with me when I see this physical prosperity in my life. Because my enemy does not triumph over me, again, focused on the temporal, physical realm. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. At least that's, a, again, showing a perspective that sees God is the one who is holding us up or sustaining us. God is the one who's empowering this and, and enabling this. And you're the one who sets and set before your set your before and set me before your face. That God's the one who's doing that though. And so there's certainly language of faith there, but it does it does tend in David's case to be focused on some of these the physical aspects of it. But it's not that he doesn't understand the spiritual side of it. And tonight, my encouragement to you would be to see this psalm first and foremost as a discussion about how we can have this restoration with God. Like when I'm poor in spirit, when, when I'm in a place where I'm not in a healthy situation, where I'm dealing with things that are lacking in my life or suffering in my life, Now, it's not lacking in the sense that the one who is God's child lacks nothing positionally. It's available, but I'm not appropriating it. I'm not availing myself experientially of God's provision that is available because I'm not trusting him. I'm focused on myself myself. 
And that's led to failure in my life where I'm now estranged from God in that relational intimacy that we were talking about. I'm experiencing the fallout from that, some of it caused by others, some of it caused by myself, but I need to be made right with God and restored and healed with God. I need, I need, to, be, I need to be, again, have my perspective change and my focus change. Well, that's all tied to, first and foremost, our spiritual thinking, our, our mentality, our spiritual well-being. And, of course, in this context, we can't make a direct application because we're not living in, the, in that covenantal arrangement where you have the Mosaic Covenant driving some of this understanding. So we can't always just, we can learn from and take principles from the Old Testament, but we can't always have it be a straight-up application. In any event, this has been a good psalm. I, I like this psalm as you think about where should the poor turn. The poor is just referencing anybody who has that need or helplessness. And if you think about that definition, poverty then is universal. It can be externally caused, it can be self-inflicted, but if you sit here tonight, there's a need. There's things that you're helpless to do anything about other than taking that as an opportunity to trust the Lord. And regardless of whether what's causing the difficulty or the hardship or the thing that is missing where there's a need that is, that is unmet, regardless of what is causing it, the believer needs to realize that they're in, they have a perpetual need for God's assistance in their life. And as you think about appropriating available assistance, it's always there, but my prayer needs to have this, this turn of thinking or this change of thinking where I put my focus back on the Lord and turn to Him and look to Him to provide what is lacking or what is missing or what needs to, or even to, to facilitate the restoration that is needed. It's always available, but I need to get my eyes in the right place. And so God primarily does use people to meet the needs that people have in their lives, but you're ultimately being blessed by Him. You're ultimately, He's the source of who's providing that need. It is a blessing when God works in your life or through your life to benefit other people in times of needs, but you're not the one who's bringing the blessing. God is just using you as a conduit to work through you, and He should be the one who's the focus in your life as the one that God is working through and in their life as the beneficiary, even of God working in your life to benefit other people. But all the focus has to rightfully be on God or it should rightfully be on God. So that's something that is hard to remember at times. So where should the poor turn? Well, the poor always need to turn to the Lord. That's really the takeaway of this psalm that there's a place that we need to be looking in times of need, and it isn't people, it's the Lord. And so the most important verse to me in this psalm is verse four. I said, Lord, be merciful to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you, that posture of instead of this discussion about what all these people have done, just getting my eyes and my focus and my gaze fixed back on the Lord. And then I can have that healing and the restoration. Then my poverty can be cared for and provided for by the one who can really do something about it anyway, which is God himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in this psalm. Thank you for any encouragement that it would have been or any reminder that it would have been to keep our focus on the right places. Pray that we would also be challenged, though, also to see that you do want to work in our lives. You want us to trust your truth or accept your truth. You want us to be even thankful for the forgiveness and restoration 
that has occurred in our life positionally and practically, but then you do want to work in and through our lives to make us a blessing to other people. Pray that we would see that this life isn't about ourselves. It's about serving you and enjoying you and ministering to other people. Pray that we would want to be that in their lives. So perhaps that in their time of need, they wouldn't be uh, left like David was saying, my enemies are against me and my friends are against me. Perhaps they could see your goodness revealed in their lives as you work in our lives in their time of need. May that be true about even us as a, ch a church family as we are intended to be used by you to be an encouragement to build each other up in time of need. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and that you would be the focus point of our lives and that we would want to magnify you and make you bigger by the things that